Greetings, greetings, and welcome to the show. This is Wrong Place, Right Crime. I am your host, Frank Zafiro, and this is a very special episode for a couple of reasons. For one, we are going to interview Neely Tucker, and you'll find out more about him in a few moments. And why am I using the word we? It is because I am joined by special guest co-host, Dana King. Hey, Dana. Frank, how you doing? Thanks for having me on. Oh, it's uh, exciting to do. I'm glad we've been uh, talking about it for better part of a year. It feels like. Yeah, it's uh, well, and I, I had to postpone once because I had a chance to actually travel and see my daughter. But uh, yeah, it's nice to finally get us to come together on this one. Now, just uh, a little bit of background for listeners out there as to who you are. Um, you've actually been on the show, so if people want to find out more about uh, you, they can type Dana King into the search engine there on the Wrong Place Right Crime website. Did I say that right? Uh, in the Wrong Place or Right Crime uh, website, uh, wrongplacerightcrime.com, and uh, get uh, get your episode up. Uh, we talked for quite a while. Uh, but you are a largely police procedural author. The Penns River series is your flagship series. And you're currently living in Laurel, Maryland, about halfway between D.C. and Baltimore, up I-95. And you've spent your majority of your life in that region, I have now. Uh, I was born outside of Pittsburgh and lived there till I left for the Army. But uh, I've lived here all but about three years since 1987. So I'm getting close to where I've lived half my life in this area. So I'm <laughs> not quite a native, but I'm probably the next best thing. Uh, and you and I first met uh, at my first BoucherCon in St. Petersburg back in 2019, which seems like it was a long time ago. I guess it wasn't. No, was it 20? It was 2018. 18. Let me 18. do that again. Uh, at, at my very first voucher con in 2018 down in St. Petersburg. And it's actually kind of an interesting story I want to share with people. Um, well, why don't you share the story? You actually, uh, I was, it was the, you know, the first day and I was kind of, you know, roaming the halls looking for people. And I came across a friend of mine named Terrence McCauley. There's another fine writer. I think you've had Terrence on the show too. I have. And, uh, your back was to me and I didn't know you at that time. I saw Terrence and I didn't want to break into your conversation, but I kind of insinuated myself into it. And while I'm kind of talking to Terrence, you look down at my name badge and you go, oh, you're the guy who wrote that blog post about coming up and introducing yourself at BoucherCon. I can't believe I just fell into you like this the first day there. And that was how we <laughs> met. And we wound up having dinner with Terrence and his wife that night and my wife. Mm -hmm. And we've been friends ever since. Well, and that blog post that I was referencing was about your first time at BoucherCon and how somebody really kind of was you know, very kind to you and extended friendship to you and kind of guided you around a little bit and made your first uh, conference uh, very enjoyable. And so you uh, always try to pay it forward. And I was the lucky recipient of that uh, payment. And that's, and, and Corky, my wife and I, we, we make a conscious effort to try to do that because I still remember, I mean, you know, the story about my first voucher con that, that most writers are introverts and it's mm -hmm. hard for us to go up and talk to people, even people that we might become friendly with. So when a, a somebody I had been friendly with broke the ice for me with someone, with Scott Phillips, it was in fact, who was, uh, who, who was high profile at the time, um, it just it just gave me the confidence to say, well, I can you want you can walk up to anybody about your con and say hello and they'll be happy to talk to you. And everybody's very nice there. But I also realized, you know, that my first year, somebody had to teach me that. So every year before we go to Boucher Con, assuming we'll ever go again, 
Um, I run that same blog post to tell that story and tell people that, you know, anybody is, is, you know, feeling bashful or shy about walking up to talking to a writer, you know, I'm not Scott Phillips or Michael Connolly or Lee Child, but come on up, talk to me and I'll talk to you, introduce you around as best I can. And, and uh, it, it's, it's fun for me too. We, uh, we kind of adopted uh, James D.F. Hanna at, um, in Dallas BoucherCon. And it was fun just to watch the look on his face as he got to know some of these people, these people that he'd read about for years and, and found out that, yeah, you can just ask them if you want to have dinner and they'll have dinner with you. And, and uh, it was just fun to watch him. So we're looking forward to doing the same thing in Minneapolis this year. And hopefully that'll happen. Hopefully. Uh, no, no one has ever uh, accused me of being shy or bashful, but I got to tell you, it's still having someone pave the way for you and introducing you to people. Uh, it just makes it so much easier. And, and you feel like you have a little instant credibility because someone's vouching for you by, by introducing you and just really, uh, really, really greases the skids in making friends. Yeah. It, it's, um, and like I said, it, it, it's fun to watch the new person come in. I, I still remember, um, James, which is a pen name. And since that's the name he used, I'll stick with it. But he came walking past me at the bar one night. You just had this, this look on his face. And I said, what happened? He goes, I just shook hands with Reed Farrell Coleman. I said, yeah, yeah. Reed and I have beer together, you know, at conferences sometimes. And, and it's like, it this, and, and I'm, I was like that too. It never occurred to you. These guys whose names you see on the covers of books mm -hmm. that they just don't live these, you know, exalted lives no they come to the bar just like you did and they all mm -hmm. stand there and talk to readers and talk to writers just mm -hmm. like anybody else but it's really a very cool environment yeah it's a great community uh reed's been on the show as well if, if you're listening mm -hmm. and you're curious about reed farrell coleman and had a great interview with him um but even the big 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 names you know the michael Connollys and these kinds of folks are are extremely accessible and friendly and that's just the crime fiction environment in general, that whole community, especially BoucherCon and Left Coast Crime. I've noticed uh, the two that, that I go to. Uh, I know you go to a couple other ones. So, um, you know, I, I suspect it's probably throughout the entire industry. I have never been to a crime fiction conference that wasn't like that. Um, I'm scheduled to go to Left Coast this year. And we're hoping that the the virus cooperates to that because our plane tickets are paid for and everything. But, um yeah, so I'm, I'm expecting the same sort of experience. But crime fiction writers are people who sit around thinking about how to kill people and get away with it all day. They're really very nice people. <laughs> well, you met today's guest, Neely Tucker, at a crime fiction event, actually, not a conference. It was at a noir in the bar. Um, so we're going to talk to him in just a few moments. But first, I do need to let everyone know that uh, Wrong Place Right Crime is proudly sponsored by Down and Out Books, uh, a, a publisher that Dana knows well. Uh, Down and Out Books is a mid-sized publisher of crime fiction, most of it at the darker and grittier end of the spectrum. If that sounds like something you might like, you can go to their website, downandoutbooks.com. That's Down and Out Books, all spelled out, dot com. Down and Out Books, take the journey with us. Uh, and that's actually where your Penns River uh, novels are currently published. Yes, they've done all the Penns River books, and they've done one of my Nick Forte books. And hopefully someday we'll get a chance to um, to circle back and, and pull the rest of the Nick Fortes into the fold, because I, I really enjoy working with those guys. Well, let's hear from Down and Out Books right now. Lance Wright is going to tell us about what we can expect from the publisher in the month of May. Hey, Frank. Thanks for having me back to talk about new titles being published by Down and Out Books in May. First up, 
The Damned Lovely, a murder mystery by Adam Frost. When a beautiful and mysterious new patron to the Damned Lovely Bar in East L.A. turns up murdered, Sam Goss, a regular, can't stop himself from getting involved in solving the crime. But the chase sets him on a collision course with a crooked charity, violent fundamentalist, corrupt cops, brazen embezzlers, and someone dangerously close to home. All who want to make sure the truth never comes out. Next up, Mark Connard has a new thriller, Breaking Character. A small-time actor is accused of murdering his girlfriend's abusive ex, and he escapes the heat when he accepts the bizarre role of an eccentric billionaire's long-lost friend, allowing him to hide in plain sight while he searches for the real killer. But the actor must risk losing his identity, his freedom, even his life, to end the drama he's been unwittingly cast in. Also coming out this month is the fourth thriller in the Deep Cover series by Joel Barrows, Deep Purple Cover, with this entry set in California's wine country. Things in Napa Valley are not as they seem. Everyone wants to get into the wine business, but at what cost? When the co-owner of Pavese Vineyards goes missing, there are few clues to his disappearance. When his remains unexpectedly turn up, dark forces loom large. FBI Special Agent Rowan Parks is assigned to the case and quickly realizes that the Bureau needs someone on the inside. There is only one person to call, her former lover and ATF's greatest undercover operative, David Ward. Finally, I'd like to mention this month's episode of a grifter song, Ghost Image by Cat Richardson. In an eerie lodge in the Pacific Northwest, Rachel poses as a medium with Sam as her technician as the pair target the wealthy Axel Strauss. But Strauss has some deep secrets of his own that are dangerously close to spilling over, and the supernatural events that Rachel and Sam must manage for him only heighten the tension. Old and new betrayals, long-standing alliances, and unspoken agendas all come to a head as the snow flies, trapping everyone at the lodge. Thanks again, Frank, and I'll catch up with you again next month with more new titles from Down and Out Books. Thank you, Lance. Well, our guest on this episode, Neely Tucker, is the guest that you chose and uh, that you've met and had conversations with. And, and you and I had a wonderful conversation with him. Um, but for people who don't know uh, who Neely is, uh, why don't you uh, go ahead and, and kind of introduce him? I came across Neely, discovered him for myself, at a Noir at the Bar event in D.C., um, where he read an excerpt from his book, Only the Hunted Run, which I think is a wonderful title, by the way. He'd worked for the Washington Post. He'd worked for the uh, Miami uh, Herald. He worked for the Detroit Free Press. And he had been a war correspondent for years in Bosnia, in uh, Rwanda. And uh, we'll, we'll talk about some of that when, when we get to him here in a couple of minutes. But he also has a memoir out called Love in the Driest Season, which I have yet to read, but I will read. It's a story about how he and his wife adopted a, a baby that had been left for dead. In, uh, in Zimbabwe during the AIDS epidemic. And he's uh, also been nominated for Pulitzer Prize and just as uh, a wonderful guy. I spoke to him a little bit there and we become friends on Facebook. And when you offered me the opportunity to pick somebody, he popped to mind because I guess because I was aware of the fact that I didn't really know who he was until I saw him at the war at the bar. He doesn't seem to have the kind of profile I think his writing deserves because I don't know which of the three books he's written I would recommend the most. They're all that good. 
And during the interview, we really don't even touch on his memoir or all of the acclaim that, that came from that, uh, or a lot of the freelance writing that he's done. That's, uh, that's left for you, the listener to discover at his website. But we do talk about his Sully Carter novels quite a bit. And, uh, he's a, a good talker, funny guy, smart guy, very introspective as well. Had a great time talking to him. And, uh, what do you say we get right to it? Sounds good to me. Well, hey, Neely, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Glad to be here. Dana and I are pretty excited to chat with you. In fact, uh, why don't you dive right in? Dana, I know you've got some questions you want to ask. Hey, thank you, Frank. First, I want to uh, make sure I, I thank Frank for giving me this opportunity. I've been looking forward to it. And it's uh, it's going to be a lot of fun. Um, I'm also tickled that uh, Neely was, was able to come to us today. I, I first uh, became aware of his writing at a noir at the bar event in D.C., where he read an excerpt from his third Sully Carter book, Only the Hunted Run. Uh, I've read all three books since then, and I really couldn't tell you which one I like best. Uh, Neely, I uh, I mentioned in the intro that you were a foreign correspondent for the Post, and you spent a lot of your time going in places that 99% of the population wouldn't be caught dead in for fear they get their asses shot off. What drew you to these kinds of assignments, and how long were you abroad? I was abroad for seven or eight years, uh, and I think what drew them to me is sort of what drew me to writing about crime fiction is that I had and still have the idea that you can learn something that's very essentially true about human nature when the rules are removed, that when people step outside the law, that they behave in a way that is true to their essential selves and about who we are as human beings and homo sapiens. And that the way you could learn about that was to see it and to watch it. And I thought being a foreign correspondent and covering conflict in a lot of different places was uh, a very good, very raw, and very brutal way to learn that. And, you know, in a very personal way. What were some of those places that you served? uh, I covered the war in Bosnia for about four years. Uh, I did not realize until I got to Rwanda that I had never been scared in Bosnia. (laughs) I learned that I was afraid in Rwanda. There's something vaguely impersonal about being shot at from a distance and mortar fire coming in, which was the principal way that, you know, you were under duress as a reporter in Bosnia, other than crossing checkpoints and people being nasty to you, soldiers at those checkpoints. But in Rwanda, I was covering the executions there after the genocide. I stress I was there in post-genocidal Rwanda because nobody was there during genocidal Rwanda. But this was an event where they were executing 22 of the people who would carry out the genocide. And I was separated from the main body of reporters who had come over from Kenya I had actually been in northern Uganda. We had to drive 24 hours to get down to Kigali in Rwanda. And so I was standing there with uh, the interpreter and fixer that was working with me. He was Ugandan, but of uh, Rwandan descent. He looked Tutsi and and making making the shorthand. And the crowd believed that I was French because I had a ponytail. I was white and I had a ponytail and that made you French, which sort of, I had the idea that this would have amused my friends back home who don't even think I can speak English correctly. I was somehow French. But, uh, and so there was uh, this sort of mob scene where they learned that I was a reporter 
And I remember being so pressed together by so many hundreds, if not thousands of people that my feet came off the ground. And I was just sort of moving back and forth in this crowd of people who was absolutely enraged, who absolutely, you know, were, their families had been killed during the genocide. And they were extremely emotional after seeing these people executed, uh, you know, by firing squad in front of them. And that's, that is one of the, there's a couple of times when I thought I was going to die as a foreign correspondent. That's always the one that comes to mind. Well, that's, that would do it. I mean, it, it's, uh, yeah. I didn't want to learn anymore. I wanted to come back to Kansas. I had, I had, I, <laughs> I guess to- not. <laughs> well, that leads me, that leads me right into the next, uh, next thing I wanted to ask you is the, the protagonist of your three crime novels is a, is a, correspondent named Sully Carter and Sully had been in Bosnia and he had, he had the physical and mental scars to show that he involved in a lot of, uh, a lot of the activity. Uh, how much of you is in Sully and how much did your experiences both at home and since you come back influence the, the Sully Carter books? You know, I, I, if I was spitballing it, I'd say about a third. Um, there are some of my experiences in there. I wanted Sully, since it was a series, I wanted him to have a really rich and original strain of backstory so that we could go into that. So that's one reason to make him a foreign correspondent. That also gives him the perception and understanding that when he's working in uh, D.C. and dealing with a lot of uh, drug dealers, that he sees them as warlords. He has a different perspective of their role in society and who they are. So he's come from this experience of covering war and dealing with warlords. So that when he comes here, he sort of sees the setting in DC. There's it's set in the, uh, in the mid nineties when DC was the murder capital of the United States. So to him, it's a very automatic transition that warlords there, warlords here. If you want to know who's killing people, you don't go ask the police, you go ask the people who are killing people. Those are the people who would know. The police are like you. They don't know and they want to find out. And there are limitations to not being a police officer. You don't have a subpoena. You don't have a gun. You can't make people come with you. But there's also benefits. You're not as threatening. You're not as imposing. You can sort of slide into places where police and others can't. And you can do that because you have this magic repertorial badge. I'm a reporter. It's amazing the number of people will answer questions that are absolutely none of your business because you have to be employed by a newspaper or magazine. So in that sense, I, I wanted to use some of my own background for that. Sully himself is an amalgamation and mashed together part of lots of people I've known, and some of it is just whole cloth. I, I had him get blown up in Bosnia and be evacuated because a friend of mine, Santiago Leon, was. And I knew what that experience was like uh, from having watched uh, Santiago go through it. And I covered a a case in D.C. in which a defendant had been shot by somebody, by Reuben Ratman Bell, as a matter of fact. And he had all these scars, like train tracks going across his chest and this scar on his face. So I just sort of transposed that onto Sully. Because as you said, I wanted him to have this physical presence that demonstrated his past and also made him a little bit scary. You know, Sully's supposed to look like... um, if he hit you, it would hurt, and he'd know how to hurt you. I wanted him to have that edge, uh, and I don't. I mean, I don't scare anybody. I'm 5'8 and 160 pounds. So. 
you you mentioned that uh, the drug dealers in D.C. reminded you of, of the warlords you'd seen uh, in, in the war situations. And when we were talking beforehand, um, we mentioned a little bit about the drug dealer who Sully is. I won't say they're quite friends, but they're kind of both using each other for their own purposes. Talk a little bit about that relationship, because I think it plays into what you said, that this this drug dealer certainly would never deal with a cop the way he deals with Sully. So he's helpful to Sully, but he's also playing him. Yeah, there's and, and they're both aware of that. The, the guy's name is Sly Hastings, and he was the most fun character to write in the book. And originally, I had had him as a sort of a minor character. But, you know, as we were talking about before this, that the fun in writing is when you get going, you have an idea of what you want to do. And then your characters just start walking around and doing things on the page that you had no idea were going to do. And that's when it's good. I think then you're surprising yourself. That means you're surprising your readers. And that's gold. That's stuff I don't. I just really don't ever rewrite when they once they start doing that. And Sly was somebody who just stood up off the page and started walking around and casting shadows. And, you know, I kind of liked him a lot better than Sully Buddy. <laughs> uh, because, again, he's he's the one with the most at play and he's the most ruthless, but he doesn't demonstrate that. Sully is somebody in this situation in the criminal element of D.C., who's kind of having to punch above his weight, right? He's kind of having to show that he's got clout and he's not scared to be in this situation. And if you bark at him, he's not going to jump. You know, He's had a gun pointed at him before and shot and, and been shot at before. He's not going to jump. Sly Hastings makes people jump. He doesn't have to try. He's all understated because everybody knows who he is. He's also you know, an amalgamation of several different people. But I remember I wrote about one case when I was covering crime in the courts for uh, the Washington Post. And I was at my kid's playground picking her up. And this lady came over and talked to me. And she was saying, you don't remember me, but you called me on the phone. And you wrote this story about this um, enforcer for a drug gang in D.C. who was killing people, but he can never be prosecuted for that. And I was one of the jurors that you called and asked, why didn't you guys, why did you guys vote to acquit? And she goes, I'll tell you now what I didn't tell you in your repertorial role. And that's everybody on that jury, largely from Southeast D.C., knew exactly who this guy was. And we knew exactly what his business was, was eliminating witnesses. And he looked at us and we looked at him and we knew each other. And there was no way in heck any of us we're going to vote to acquit that guy because we were going home late. <laughs> I thought that was fascinating. That's you mean convict, why. right? Yeah, they voted to acquit. And so because if you voted to convict him, he would come and find you or he would have people come and find you. So he, they voted to acquit because they wanted to just get on with their lives after this jury business was finished with. And so that's who, that's who Sly is. I gave him that sort of persona. And uh, geez, it's almost like we rehearsed this because your answers keep leading me in, into what the next question I wanted to ask you was. But we were talking before we started a little bit. I, I've lived in the in the D.C. metro area for all but a few of the last 35 years. And I, you know, I, I read the paper. I follow the post. And I kind of know what things were like, generally speaking, on the crime situation. I was here. Uh, living here when when the the Sully stories took place, but yet you kept finding things in those books that 
there, there are multiple layers to those books. And somebody who actually paid attention to that stuff as much as I thought I did just missed altogether. And we were discussing earlier about you talk about the, the point of the books for you is to talk about the high aspects of DC and the low aspects of DC. Uh, explain that to the listeners a little bit. Yeah, there's there's uh, the concept of those books, what Sully was always going to do, and then all those books are going to marry, is the high-end, very powerful national capital aspect of D.C. National politicians, you know, senators, congressmen, people with real national clout. That's what everybody pictures is Washington. You know, in every film or, or television show, there's the, you know, helicopter, I guess, drone shot now of, you know, the thing above the Capitol where you see the Capitol building and you see the Washington Monument. You have your five second scene setter that tells you we're in Washington. That's actually a tiny physical geographic place of Washington. Much more of the city reminds me of my former home in Detroit. And that's sort of the low end of D.C., uh, all of the high and lower end, you know, quote marks. That's the working class part of the city. That is, you know, it has a lot in common with Baltimore, a lot in common with Detroit. You have a stark racial divide. You have some uh, history of some racial issues. You have some very definite class issues in the cities, but it's not necessarily involved with the federal power structure. And Sully is a link that goes between high and low. Because he's a reporter, there is a natural, plausible reason for him to walk into a powerful judge's chambers and ask him questions. But he can also drive a couple of miles and walk into the living room of Sly Hastings, you know, the uh, the uh, largely unknown to the wider public, but a very powerful drug dealer and, you know, social operator in the rest of D.C. And sullies that connective tissue between the two. And in all of those those books, those two things intersect. Um, you have some sort of conflict between the high end and the low end. I have a vested interest in this next question because because I like the book so much. Um, you'll force me to read them again unless you give me a good answer to this next question. But do you have any more Sully books on the horizon? Uh, not at the moment. I think I, you know, I kind of did with the three what I, I wanted to. And I had some um, other ideas that I wanted to pursue. Um, the book sales, may your tribe increase. They were good, but they were not so you know, amazing as that the publisher was throwing crazy money at me to keep doing them. So I kind of had an option of continuing or, you know, did I want to try something else? And I wanted to give it a break for a minute. I, I really admire Michael Conley and people who can, you know, write about the same character 15, 20 times, but you know, it's a little different from once you start doing it than, than when you get involved with it. I think and, the uh, secret for Connolly is is that the character undergoes change over time. So even though you're writing about the same character, he's not the same character in book 17 as he was in book one. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, readers of series really sign up for the character. They're, that's It's the adventures of Harry Bosch and the adventures of Sully Carter. But what people coming back to is your main character, mm -hmm. right? That's what they're there for. And so the plots, I think the longer the series go on, the specific plots get to matter a little less and the character, the central character, you know, matters a little more. Yeah. Those plots start to matter in terms of what it allows you to explore about the character. Whereas in the early couple of episodes, it's just as important as the character. 
in the description for Ways of the Dead, you described, if you wrote this, if not, you had a great copy editor doing some awesome work, that clash between uh, high and low of Washington that uh, Washington nobody, nobody sees as the minor chord view of the city. And that's a really cool turn of phrase. It, it really evokes exactly what you were describing. Yeah, that, that uh, you know, my mom was a piano teacher and I grew up playing music and I I think very musically and visually when I'm writing and I'll get something in what gives a, the separation of what gives something a good, what's good writing a lot of the time is action obviously is one, but it's also the mood of things, the way things feel. I felt like I was there, right? I'm getting a talking to a good talking to from somebody who knows the score on this subject. And they're just not telling me what happens. They're telling me what it feels like to be there. That's why people read books and they remember those books because they made them feel a certain way. And the Sully books are definitely a minor chord. They're not a power chord. Everything feels so great. You know, it's kind of a little melancholy, sadder edge Mm -hmm. to the way things actually work and work so it's important. You got to know it, you know, as, as a practitioner when you're doing it, but you don't need to know what a minor chord is to know what it sounds like and make, mm-hmm. make it feel right. Mm-hmm. And it's the same way in, in a book. You don't need to know all the thinking behind it. You just know if it works and it makes you feel that way. We will get back to that interview with Neely Tucker in just a moment. But now is the time on the program where I like to turn to the experts And by experts, I mean former guests of the show who are writers. What are they expert in? Well, they're expert in recommending books for you to read. Uh, It is a rare time where you'll get a bum recommendation from another writer. And so this month, we're going to hear from Bill Cameron, Barb Goffman, John McMahon, A.B. Patterson, and Kevin Tipple. I'm Bill Cameron, uh, who also writes as W.H. Cameron, author of Crossroad and The Skin Kadish Mysteries. And uh, a book that I just finished and loved is uh, Shed No Tears by Kaz Freer. Uh, she's a, an author from Great Britain. I'm not sure if she's English, Scottish, Irish. Her main character is an, uh, an Irish member of Scotland Yard, Cat uh, Kinsella, and uh these are uh, very a very engaging series where Cat uh, is the daughter of a you know sort of an underworld kingpin who herself chose to go into police work uh, as kind of a way to offset her father's choices as a as a criminal mastermind. And uh, each one of her books gets uh, she's both investigating uh, murders. And also, they seem to overlap her father's life in ways that make things very, very comfortable for her. So they're great reads. She's got a wonderful voice as a writer. And uh, I look forward to each of these books as they come out. Um, and this last one, Shed No Tears by Kaz Freer, was uh, you know, perhaps the best. Hey, this is John McMahon. I'm the author of The Good Detective and the other P.T. Marsh books. And a book I have read recently and loved was The Plot by Jean Hanf Korolitz. 
Um, and it was, you know, there's enough things you're like wondering where it's going, but the same enough things that you're suspecting where it's going, but then she reverses that expectation on you a couple of times. So I really enjoyed it. That book is The Plot by Jean Hanf Corlitz. Okay, so hi, I'm Barb Golfman, and I'm the author of nearly 50 short stories, including the Agatha-nominated A Tale of Two Sisters, and also at the same time, um, Agatha-nominated for the story A Family Matter. Um, and anyway, I would love to recommend um, a cozy mystery by Sherry Harris called Three Shots to the Wind. If you love cozies and if you love funny, you were going to love this book. It is the funniest book she's ever written. So make sure to pick up Three Shots to the Wind by Sherry Harris, which is the third book in her Sea Glass Saloon mystery series. Hi, my name's A.B. Patterson. Uh, I'm an Australian crime fiction author. I'm the author of uh, Harry's World, uh, Harry's Quest, and Harry Kenmare PI at Your Service, a collection of short stories. My book recommendation uh, is stretching back into the classics, and it is 1984 by George Orwell. It's a book I first read uh, before I was uh, even had got to 1984, and I've uh, reread it since over the years. And for me, uh, one of the things that resonates, I think, even more now uh, than when I was a younger person is just how timeless the message in the book is, or the various messages, I should say. I think Orwell showed an incredible understanding uh, of human nature and the dynamics of power, and he managed to put that into uh, what is both um, an entertaining novel to read, uh, but also, I think, a very important uh, social piece of work. And I think as current time is showing, despite the fact that we are now some, what's, let me do my maths quickly, some 80 years on from when he wrote it. I think the message is uh, as strong as ever, and we've seen so many things uh, that he seemed to be able to foresee coming true, unfortunately, for a lot of it. Um, and I think it's actually a reflection that he had such a good understanding of human nature and the dynamics of power. Uh, and in my view, that those things uh, don't change. Um, and hence, uh, the book, I think, still has massive relevance for us, particularly in the Western liberal democracies. So that's my recommendation. Go back to the classics. <laughs> the title is 1984, and it's written by George Orwell. This is Kevin Tipple of Kevin's Corner, and I'm back today re recommending A Bad Day for Sunshine by Deandra Jones. This is the first book of a new series. Um, it features Sunshine Vicarium. She's back in Del Sol, New Mexico, with her teenage daughter, Aurora. She's been elected police chief, and she didn't plan to be running. But her mother was involved and set things up, and there's a lot of local conspiracy stuff going on. She's working a murder case, and there's a lot of humor in this book. It's not exactly a cozy, and it's not exactly a police procedural. It's something in between. There's a hint of romance. There's a lot of backstory, which if I explain now, would blow the book, and we will not blow the book. And it's a mighty good read. It's A Bad Day for Sunshine by Deandra Jones. Check it out. Take a look. I think you'll like it. Uh, 
All right. Thanks, folks. Appreciate it. And I'm sure you as the listener do as well. There's got to be a recommendation in there that'll be a hit for you. And while you're checking out the books that each of those authors has recommended, uh, take the uh, take the opportunity to check them out as well. Uh, all good writers who might very well become your next favorite writer. Or that might be Neely Tucker. Let's get back to that conversation with Neely. Um, since, since Sully is, uh, at best on a hiatus, what are you working on now? I'm working on a new book that's, uh, I call it, it's a modern retelling of true grit or a semi-modern telling it's set in the 1970s. And it's about a young lady in rural Mississippi, my home neck of, of the planet, whose dad and best friend are killed up in Memphis and she goes just as in true grit. Uh, she enlists a couple of her, her aunt and the friend of her dad, his mom, and they go up to Memphis to see what happened, reclaim the bodies. Complications ensue, as they say, and they wind up in Detroit, which is where they're going to find the answers that they do and they don't want to know. It's sort of a I've bounced around a, a couple of ways of how to telling that of just first person from the girl who is uh, Maggie Magnolia, as in Mississippi, from just her point of view to uh, having someone else tell the story in a in a in a box that comes in, who comes in years after she died, uh, or comes in when she dies, and finds these things she's left behind and puts together the story of what happened. I was always drawn to the you know the stere- stereotypes, the wrong word, archetype of the crazy person in any little Southern town, everybody knows somebody. If you're from a little Southern town, you know somebody named Coop or somebody named Cooter. You just do. And <laughs> and that person usually lives like out on the edge of town. This is Boo Radley, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, it's Pecola Breedlove and Tony Morrison. The person on the edge, that odd weirdo on the edge of town that is watching us and knows something about us. And it's going to might show up and do something, but we really that they're mysterious. And so Maggie, after these, uh, this seeking justice for her dad, she becomes that person and this archetype, the crazy lady in the woods, the witch of Winston County, as she's known. And part of the book is explaining what was going on out there all these years after she seeks justice for her father, why she sort of disappears. I would look forward to that one because based on the on the three I've read so far, that's you would handle that uh, very well. I'm in the process of reading William Goldman's memoir, uh, Adventures in the Screen Trade. And he talks about writing a screenplay for all the president's men and how they ran it back past the Washington Post to make sure everybody was okay with it. And the Post had a few issues with how the Post was depicted in it. They had to, they had to fudge around. Sully writes for a fictitious newspaper. But you can't read it and not know you're talking about the Washington Post. Right. I mean, that's just that's just how it is. Have you ever had any blowback or comments from anybody at the Post about the books? No, uh, I ha- I did explain to one guy. Uh, most everybody in there again is a is a pastiche. There's a couple of fun things that somebody, my friend uh, Alma, wanted to be in the book. She had said something. I'd written the first. She goes, "I want to be in the book." So she's is in, you know, by name, she's the badass FBI agent who comes in and, you know, sort of smacks Sully around. But that's just for fun of using her name. I didn't have anybody, you know, complain that uh, that I had taken the name of the institution in vain. 
there are some pretty identifiable characters in there that that if you know anybody's working in the building, we go, ah, I know who that is. But uh, most would of they that be was, right? Well, in one case, I actually explained Henry Allen was my editor, but a Pulitzer Prize finalist three times, won it once. Hands down, the best editor I ever worked with. Henry has the gift. His, his poetry is in the New Yorker. He's, he's a really good artist. He's just talented in ways I, I can't think of. And Henry had a really, and still does, he's, he's retired from the paper now, but he had a really big personality and, you know, was a former Marine and he had this gruff voice. He'd come by your desk and, ah, Tucker, what are you working on there? And he was just great. He was just a real character. And so I had fun with him in the book. He's the most identifiable one. And of course, in the book, this character is Sully's editor and he's gay. And I did, I did call Henry before the book came out. And I said, by the way, this is you. And yes, I made you gay. And uh, I just wanted to make sure you didn't have any problems with that for whatever reason. And he said, no, of course. not." So that's I mean, that's the that's the only person I ran it by. And that's that's the most identifiable character. That's interesting uh, because you know, I, I write police procedurals and I started while I was still on the job. And so I actually fictionalized the city and the police department and was super vague about my bio and everything because I was worried about blowback from the from the police department. And uh, ultimately, the, the, it was embraced. I mean, the, the, the chief was really cool. But People that I work with are always coming up and saying, hey, 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 that Lieutenant Hart, that Weasley IA prick, that's this guy, right? And or that's this and, – and or the main – one of the core of the series is is a woman named uh, Katie McLeod, a police officer. And so I've had about no less than like nine women be guessed as the basis for her. And honestly, I, I lied about it for a long time and said nobody's based directly on anybody except for the one character that I was kind of my Henry that I you know was really clear about that it was based on him. But uh, lately I've gotten to the point where I'm like, well, yeah, there's a little bit of this guy in, in that character, you know, because he was kind of a shit and this guy's kind of a shit. And so we're all retired yeah. now. We can tell the truth. <laughs> well, the, the, the thing is, is, I mean, it goes, uh, you know, uh, uh, a couple of ways on that. The. You know, my uh, my quote unquote out that I always tell everybody is, look, you do understand that I wrote every character in this book. Nobody says anything or does anything that I don't write down and tell them to do. So they're kind of all me. 100 percent of them, everybody in that book actually is me. <laughs> there can be nobody else. That's sort of my out. Right. Um which is, you know, it's still true, but uh, I did get on that note when you're talking about all these people guessing who it is. Lisa Scodellini uh, had given one of the books a very kind review, but she had, you know, uh, gave me a good natured little chuck under the chin and and talked about how Sully's uh, sometimes love interest is Alexa, this, you know, sort of really tough, great female photographer uh, who covers a lot of the same stuff Sully does. And they hook up every now and then. It's not terribly serious. But she wears really racy lingerie under her, you know, sort of kind of butch outfit of where she goes wearing, you know, with the photographer's vest and the baggy jeans and all this stuff. And Lisa, uh, you know, sort of chided me for this being sort of this male fantasy of this feminine ideal. Well, 
as it turns out, that is entirely based on a very real (laughs) (laughs) uh, reporter, not a photographer. And the only reason I know this about this person who would kill me if I ever said her name is that she mentioned this as background. She was a foreign correspondent in Africa when I was, and she and her compadres had actually been kidnapped at one point in Somalia. And she talked about, uh, was telling this, she killed with this story at a dinner table, talking about how this realization that came over her that not only has she been kidnapped in Mogadishu when she got put in this little cell, but it came back to her what she was wearing underneath her outer garments. And she was absolutely horrified about what was going to happen to her. And <laughs> it was this really hilarious story. So I put that in. I gave her this characteristic. But here's a good lesson for writers and readers alike. Even if you know it's true, the detail you put in your book, you still have to sell it to your readers. You knowing it's really true doesn't matter. It's irrelevant if it's true or false. It's do people believe it? Mm -hmm. It's not a get out of jail free card. Yeah. And I I did not convince Lisa Scotellini. I don't know how many (laughs) other people. Lisa didn't buy it. So I took it as, you know, as, as constructive feedback. Don't get lazy just because you know it's true. You uh, worked a long time as a journalist. You know, one of my favorite shows, and I know it's one of Dana's favorite shows, uh, is The Wire. And the fifth season of that, the institution being examined by the uh, by David Simon was uh, the media, particularly the newspaper. What did you think of that portrayal? Uh, did you did you like it? Did you think it was well done? Did you think it was horrible? I mean, how how did, how did you see it? If you have. Yeah, David being a former uh, reporter as well at the Baltimore Sun, I thought a lot of it was spot on. I think, you know, most everything in that series was was spot on. And uh, David had a lot of really great reporters, I mean, writers working for him that really got his ethic of what he was going for in that show, which in its way, I thought, really owed a lot to the novels of, of Elmore Leonard. Uh, what you know what we're talking about crime fiction because Dutch really reconstructed how noir and crime fiction was written and Dutch's great contribution to American Western lit was writing the deadpan comic crime novel that was funny with nobody in it trying to be funny and if that sounds like kind of a minor achievement it's only because of how ubiquitous all of that has become. Pulp Fiction is the best Dutch Leonard movie not written by Dutch Leonard. You, the characters in Rum Punch, um, what is it, Ordell and Lewis, mm-hmm. are, are Jules and Vincent Vega. It's just Quentin Tarantino, uh, you know, loved Dutch. True Crime, his first movie, was set in Detroit as an homage to Dutch. He bought the rights mm-hmm. to a ton of Dutch books. Jackie Brown, obviously, was, uh, was mm-hmm. from Rum Punch. Um, and there's just an any time you see a criminals doing something that's kind of funny, either because they're sort of blundering and stupid, they're walking through a house, they're robbing, and Jeopardy is on. Some reacher and they go, "Oh, hey, I know that one. That's a Dutch Leonard thing, right?" And The Wire drew a lot on that, in that you had characters who were really entertaining and funny whether they were criminals or reporters or anyone else, without trying to be funny, right? They were just great characters that had this edge and humor to them. Omar being, you know, the the case in point. 
That's just an Elmore Leonard character. And all of the people or so many of the people that worked on on that show, uh, from Richard Price, George Pelicanos, David, David himself, everybody had read Dutch. So I thought their take when they came to talk about reporters and some of the kind of jaded stuff you do, some of it's great, some of it's not so great. I thought that was just really spot on. Well, that's good to hear. I I, I wouldn't want my my view of the show to be tainted. I, it's one, it's one, easily one of my top five shows. I'm not going to do the Rudy thing, Joe Montana with Rudy saying, nah, they didn't carry him off the field. <laughs> <laughs> Easily one of the best scenes of that entire series was Omar giving it to that uh, defense attorney there in the courtroom where he talks about, you know, I got the shotgun, you got the briefcase, but it's all in the game, yo. Yeah. <laughs> and that's that cynical sort of funny, real, uh, you know, so there's stuff that happens in that courtroom that's very hard to film and get to come across, right? Because there's an amusing aspect to the, that line, but you have to really sell it. It's He's not doing it as a joke, as a one, two, three, bada boom, bada bing. The humor in it is his observation. It's not in his necessary, in his delivery. It's in his worldview. Mm-hmm. That's really good writing, and it's it's kind of hard to pull off, particularly on camera. Yeah, the writing in that series is is phenomenal. But uh, as you allude to, the characters, the act- actors just so embodied those characters. I mean, I, I don't think there was a poorly acted role in the entire series where I thought, that person's acting. I mean, it, it's uh, pretty incredible. The other thing that, that I really admired about that show was basically the depth of the characters in it, the humanity. Even when there are characters, you know, such as Omar, who's not necessarily a nice person, uh, <laughs> yeah. there's doing criminal things. You're still very interested in that person and you want the best for them, even though you maybe you shouldn't. That's again, that's really good. And that's the writing, the acting. They got all of that. Well, folks, Neely Tucker is our guest uh, with special guest co-host Dana King. Uh, Neely, we didn't even talk about your memoir uh, or the many awards that you've won. And so I'm going to tell people, go to uh, NeelyTucker.com, check out his backstory beyond just the Sully Carter series, which is reason enough to go there uh, and uh, prepare to be impressed. I actually downloaded one of the articles you wrote about Bobby Gentry to read later because it fascinated me when I came across it. And there's a ton of those links on, on Neely's website. So check those out. The uh, Sully Carter series starts with Ways of the Dead, and uh, there are three of them. And uh, I'm looking forward to reading them. Dana recommends them highly. Uh, Neely, uh, Dana and I both want to tell you, thanks a lot for coming on the show. It's been wonderful having you. Thank you. Thanks, guys, very much. I've really gotten a kick out of being here. Thank you. And that Bobby Gentry, that's the number one thing that people have asked me over the years, pulling me aside. So, Neely, where does she really live? And I'll say, I can't tell you. (laughs) (laughs) All right, folks, there you go. Neely Tucker. Uh, Dana, uh, was that everything you'd hoped it had been when you uh, got him on the schedule? Yes, it was. I I knew Neely wouldn't disappoint. And the only regret, and I know we couldn't do it, Neely's the kind of guy that that has enough stories and enough insights. So we could easily have spent an hour, an hour and a half talking to him and still not cover everything he has to share. So I'm looking forward to getting a hold of him again sometime. 
Yeah, he definitely is uh, the kind of guy that is has a very infectious, positive personality that comes out even over the Zoom setting that we were in. Uh, I was a little disappointed to hear, though, that uh, that I, I haven't d- dove into the uh, Sully Carter books yet, but I was a little disappointed to hear that they are. There's only going to be three. It sounds like. Yeah, well, you you still have have the benefit of being able to read them for the first time. Um, <laughs> I'm, I'm looking. I'm looking for. I'll go back and read them all again because he does. He really does fascinating things with the stories. He weaves um, he weaves true true events into the stories, and um, he does a great job, as we mentioned in the interview, talking about how the high end of DC is affected, might be affected more by the low end of DC than the low end is affected by the high end, and and how those things play off in the media, and who actually runs things in town. They're fascinating books, all three of them. Well, I'm definitely looking forward to them, and and we'll be thinking of you as I read them. When you get a recommendation from another writer, especially a crime fiction writer, uh, you're usually not disappointed when you pick the book up because we don't recommend dogs. We try not to. (laughs) Uh, Speaking of which, uh, this is the time in the show on the way out that I usually give a a quick Zafiro update on anything I've got cooking. Uh, But I'd like to use that segment this episode to uh, find out your last book that came out and uh, what's next. What's the next book? My most recent book is a Penn's River story called Leaving the Scene. It's about, ostensibly about, about a hit and run accident. But mostly what the book about is how in a small town, there are enough demands on the police time that even a homicide doesn't necessarily get priority when other things keep coming up. Uh, and the next thing I have coming up should be coming out in the spring. It's a book called Whiteout. It's also a Penn's River story. It's about a black policeman who shoots a white guy outside a bar and it turns out later that the white guy was a white supremacist and the white supremacists are going to come to try to wreck the town during the weekend of the funeral. That should be out in May. Both of these Penn's River novels, uh, that is your flagship series set in a medium-sized to small-sized town outside of Pittsburgh. I've I've read several of them and they're very authentic, very well done, and a lot of a lot of character to them, a lot of uh, sense of place and people. Thank you. All right. Well, I want to say thank you to Neely Tucker for coming on the show. Thanks to you, Dana, for inviting him and for co-hosting this episode. As always, thanks to Down and Out Books for being a great sponsor. And most of all, the star of every show, you the listener. Uh, thanks for sticking by Wrong Place, Right Crime, for checking out these various authors. I've got two of them for you, uh, for you this episode to go to check out. I would encourage you to uh, go back and listen to the episode in which I uh, interviewed Dana and you can learn more about his Penn River series and you should check those out and uh, do like I plan to do and check out uh, Neely Tucker's Sully Carter series. Meanwhile, I will be back with you next week on Wrong Place, Right Crime. Until then, this is Frank Zaffaro and Dana King reminding you, sometimes you got to be in the wrong place to write crime. 